We're in Isaiah 45 again tonight. Dipped our big toe in it last week. Tonight, I think we'll make it through. Jimmy Ink says Bibles, if you came without one. My wife had an opportunity to see the uh, movie that I believe Harvest is financing. I think that Greg Laurie and Harvest are behind the production. Um, Jesus Revolution, uh, story about Greg coming to faith and Pastor Chuck's role in that, obviously, Lonnie Frisbee's role in that as well. Um, she saw a rough cut. They're still editing. Um, she said the version that she saw was like two hours and 20 minutes. They're hoping to get it under two hours for a theatrical release. I didn't really have an opportunity to talk to her at length about it, but I was talking to somebody else mentioning that she'd seen it. And, and I made the comment, I hope they don't mess it up. Because you know how Christian movies are, right? Kelsey Grammer from Cheers from Frasier is playing Pastor Chuck. And that could be either really good or really bad. And the trailer, the preview that, that, that I've seen is encouraging but you don't know. You don't know until you know. But I, I, said to, I said to a friend, I hope that they don't make a haggis out of this. I hope that they don't mess this up. And he said, well, God can still use it. And I said, that's true. And I hope they don't mess it up. And he said, but even if they do, God will still use it. So what's the difference? You've had that same kind of conversation about something, probably many things, it's frustrating, right? The, the dilemma that we encounter as we try to wrap our heads around God's providence on the one hand, God's sovereignty on the one hand, and our responsibility on the other. Because unquestionably, God can and does use imperfect, even sinful things. Exhibit A, right here. God uses us. If he wanted things done perfectly, he'd have to do them himself. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging, and, and, I, and I try to encourage people with that when I find them agonizing over, I don't know what to do. I don't know God's will for this situation. Should I do this or should I do that? I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've sought the Lord. I haven't heard. Isn't it encouraging to know that God promises to use all things for good, for those who love him and are the called according to his name. All things means all things. All things means God uses my sin for good. If I walk over and haul off and clock Hector, God will use that for good. That would be sin, probably. But God would use it for good. And the point is, if God can use my deliberate, intentional, wanton rebellion for his glory, how much more so my prayerful best intentions? <coughs> On the other hand, the fact that God can use our sin, does use our sin, the fact that God does use our fumbling and thrashing around in this life for his purposes, that doesn't mean we should ask him to. That doesn't mean we should expect him to. 
that doesn't mean we stop caring or trying. Well, God's going to use it anyway, so I might as well phone it in. No, that's, Paul's been addressing this the last two chapters of Romans, hasn't he? Romans 6 and 7, should sin abound that grace might abound all the more? Paul says, no, no way. Of course not. Heaven forbid. The fact that God can and does use efforts that are less than his best doesn't mean that we should do less than our best. Whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23 and a bunch of other places. But, it, but it's always a chewy piece of theological gum, right? When God's sovereignty collides with our responsibility, it raises a plethora of interesting questions. Some of which, let's be honest, some of which don't have wholly satisfying answers. But some of them do. Some of them God takes head on. And that's the case in our text tonight. We left off last week in Isaiah 45, verse 8, with God having just told us through Isaiah, with God having told his people living under Babylonian rule that he plans to use Cyrus, the coming king of the Medo-Persian Empire, to defeat the Babylonians and free the Jewish people. After seven years of captivity, captivity that hadn't even started when Isaiah was speaking these things, God said, it will, it's going to, and it's going to last 70 years. And then Cyrus, who isn't born yet and who won't come to power for another 150 years, is going to be used of God for God's purposes. God just got done saying, I'm going to use someone who hasn't been born yet to end a captivity that hasn't started yet. And last week we lateraled to Daniel 5 to see how precisely and how dramatically those prophecies play out. But God knows, as we get back to Isaiah 45 this evening, God knows as his people read these prophecies, and especially as they read them from the perspective of being in Babylonian captivity, they're going to have a little bit of a problem with this plan. The first and most obvious problem, they're going to have a problem being in captivity. God, you're using a bunch of filthy Gentiles to, to, to rule and reign over us, to keep us from the land, to keep us from the temple, to keep us from worshiping. God, we're your people. How can you do us like this? But they're also going to have a problem, as indignant as they may be at the fact of their captivity, they're also going to be indignant at the idea that Cyrus, a Gentile, would be used to end the captivity that God would use a filthy Gentile to free his people. Chapter 45, verse 1, look back up. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. That's Cyrus he's talking about. Cyrus, is your, this, this Gentile is your anointed? Yeah, it, it, like last chapter I called him my anointed shepherd. Were you not paying attention? How does that work? He's a pagan. How does that make sense? God is imagining his people crying out. And his response, beginning in verse 9, is why does it need to make sense? Why do you need it to make sense? He responds, beginning in verse 9, Woe 
to those who think that way. Woe to those who think the God of the universe owes them an explanation. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Let's review, God is saying, verse 9. Who's the clay and who's the potter? I think maybe we're confused. Who's the parent, verse 10? And who's the child? If you don't like the way I'm running the universe, God is implying, maybe, I don't know, create your own? Oh, that's right, you can't. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, thus says, this is emphatic, that, that tells us God means what he's saying. He always means what he's saying, but he's emphasizing this. This is going to happen. Pay attention. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, I'm your God, God says to the people that he's, he's imagining are going to have this objection. Ask of me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Try it. See how that goes for you. I've made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their host I've commanded. I've raised him up in righteousness, and I'll direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts, but, not said but implied, because I willed it. The creation, God is underlying again, does not instruct the creator. That's not the order of things. That's not how things work. And wouldn't it make, it wouldn't make sense. Who's in a better position to order things, to arrange things, to choreograph things? You or me, God asks Israel. Who has a better perspective? You or me. Who knows the end from the beginning? You or me. Me, in case you're not sure, God says. So yeah, I'm going to use Cyrus. He's not a good guy, verse 13. That's not what God is saying, but I'm going to use him for good. He's not righteous, but I'm going to use him for righteousness, for my purposes. I'm going to use an unrighteous guy to do a righteous thing. I'm not going to pay him to do it, and I'm not going to reward him for it. I'm just going to put him in the position where he will. I'm going to arrange it. You know how God asks? I'm sovereign over Cyrus the same way I'm sovereign over you. And of course, Ezra chapter 1, we read that God does exactly that. Ezra 1, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Other translations render it, God moved on the heart of Cyrus. Either way, God ensured through Cyrus that his will would be done. And by the way, verse 14, the reason I'm doing this, God says, is bigger and grander. It's on a scale that you haven't even begun to comprehend. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, that, that underline again, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. 
They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Now, that's a bit of an odd translation at the beginning. Egypt and Ethiopia and the Sabians is how the ESV renders it. And I think that that makes a bit more sense because the Sabians were Cush. So, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's a fussy point. God is saying, all of those people groups in Northeast Africa, your historical enemies, they're going to serve you. Get on to the detail. That's God's point. Your historical, traditional enemies, there's going to come a day on the other side of this deliverance. After Cyrus does what I'm going to have him do, they're going to serve you. Now, odd translation, but an even odder idea. When did that happen? Answer, it hasn't. We just stepped into long-term prophecy. God's responding to those who would question him. You're imprisoning Israel under the Gentiles, and you're freeing Israel through the Gentiles. God is, God is elevating the discourse. He's, he's taking it up a dimension. He's saying, that's what you're concerned about, but you don't even know what's really going on here. You, you, don't, you haven't even begun to think about the plans that I have. You're concerned about me using the Gentiles? Let me tell you about the plans I have for the Gentiles. Verse 14, what God just said? He just said, I'm going to save the Gentiles. They're going to serve me by serving you as you serve me. They're going to bring wealth to build and furnish the temple. They're going to come and serve God at the temple. They're going to bow down before him. Verse 14, they're going to worship him. The Gentiles. Imagine, the, imagine what that does to a Jewish brain. Imagine what that does to people who grew up told, believing, rightly by the way, that they were God's chosen people, but believing wrongly that Gentiles were fit only to serve as fuel for the fires of hell. To the Jewish mind, the Gentiles were beyond redemption. They were filthy and always would be filthy. So imagine what it does to a Jewish mind when God says, yeah, not only am I going to use Gentiles, I'm going to save them. Verse 15, Isaiah gives us a glimpse. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. This isn't God speaking of himself. This is, this is a parenthetical aside. This is Isaiah interjecting. Isaiah giving us his real-time reaction as, as God is giving him these things to speak. Isaiah is saying, look, <laughs> hang on, time out. You're blowing my mind, Lord. It's, it's, it's a little bit like what we read in Romans. Romans 9 through 11, when we get there, we're going to see Paul draw heavily on Isaiah. And he has some of the same responses as Isaiah. Because Paul, after all, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And in Romans 11, 
when, when he considers God's plans for Israel, for, for, the, for the Gentile people, he just bursts into the same kind of thing. Oh, the depth of riches, Romans eleven thirty three, both of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways pay way past finding out. I can't, even, I can't even begin, Paul says. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who was first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul just drops a, a, a little bit of a hymn in the middle of his commentary in, in Romans. Isaiah does the same thing here. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, who is like you? You have plans within plans, gears within gears, wheels within wheels. How great are you, Lord, to, 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 not, to not only to do the things that you do, but to think the things you think, to conceive of the things you conceive of and to plan them. You're going to use idolaters to rescue Israel. Yeah, not only that, God's not done. I'm going to use idolaters to rescue Israel, and I'm going to use Israel to rescue idolaters, because from Israel is going to come forth a Messiah who is going to save not only Israel, but the nations. Verse 16, they shall be ashamed and also disgraced all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. You're going to be free from physical captivity, but that's just a preview. That's just a foreshadowing of freedom from a greater captivity, an eternal captivity, freedom from sin and death and Satan. First you, then the Gentile world through you. And the thing is, God continues in verse 18. He's not done making his point. This was my plan all along. Wait, what? Oh yeah, for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. I've not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I didn't say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Now, before we unpack that, if you want a rabbit trail tonight, look at verse 18 and ask yourself, did that just teach gap theory? If you don't know the term, gap theory is the idea that there's an interval of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, Genesis 1-1. And the earth was, we read in our New King James, without form and void. But another way to translate that Hebrew verb was is became. The earth became without form and void. And you can find some commentators who speculate that between verse 1 and verse 2, something happened. And the most likely candidate for something is the fall of Satan that we read about in Ezekiel 28. God created so goes the theory, the universe, glorious, perfect. And when Satan fell, when Satan sinned and dragged a third of the angels with him, then the perfect world that God created became damaged, became a sort of wasteland. 
And then beginning in Genesis 1-3, God began to recreate it or reboot it. And gap theory is a longer conversation. There, there, there are some intriguing things about it. There are also some substantial issues with it. So I just leave that there as kind of a teaser for you to explore on your own. I don't think the text in Isaiah requires it. I don't think that verse 18 and 19 demands that interpretation. I think it stands on its own. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. God's end goal in creation, we just read, whatever the choreography, whatever the logistics, whatever the order of operation, his goal, his plan was life. More than life was relationship. His point in creating you and me, my point in creating all of you, God is saying, Jew and Gentile, because that distinction didn't exist when I created you, my heart, my, my intent wasn't to hide from you, wasn't to be mysterious in your eyes, and it also wasn't to destroy you. I was just going to create you to destroy you. I wouldn't have created you in the first place. No, my heart and my purpose was to be with you. All of which God expresses in service of his greater point. Think about that before you judge me for how I'm running the universe. And verse 20, you also might ask, God continues, who are you going to nominate exactly to take my place? Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yet let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there's no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. There's no one who can do what I do, God is saying. At first glance, it sounds like God is making the same point he's made a few times over the past few chapters. Idols of wood and stone and metal can't speak prophecy, let alone bring it to pass. They can do neither. They can't speak it or bring it to pass. Sounds like God is reiterating that point. Sounds like he's repeating that again. And he is, with one important addition. Verse 21, who has declared this from ancient times? Read too quickly, we can miss that. But this isn't God saying what he's saying, what he said before, who declares things that will be, who declares things that will come. Broadly speaking, he's not just saying, who is, who is like me who speaks a thing and then brings it to pass? He's saying, who is God who brings this specific thing, who conceives of this, names it, and then makes it happen? What is the this that this refers to? Salvation of the world. Yeah, just a you know, little, little thing. <laughs> Salvation both of Israel and of the nations. 
and that's important. Look to me, verse 22, and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Better translation, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. Remember the beginning of the section, God is, is using a Gentile named Cyrus, and he engages in this back and forth, this banter with captive Israel. You question that? You really have no idea what's going on. No, because how could you? But I do, because I'm me. And I'm not only going to use a Gentile, I'm going to save the Gentiles if they're willing to turn to me. You and I, tonight, we recognize from our perspective, we see that plan already unfolding. We're part of that plan unfolding. The salvation that God is describing here is already underway. We're the fruit of it. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says to Gentile converts, hey, you guys turned from idols to serve the true and living God, turned from and turned to, because salvation always has those elements. We, 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 and, and we stumble over that. Well, are you saying that that's works? Are you saying that that's two different things? I thought it was just believe. Yeah, but what is believe? It's, it's turning from and turning to, and that's one thing. If I'm walking to New York and I decide I'm going to walk to Los Angeles instead, I turn from New York and I turn toward Los Angeles, that, that's one and the same thing. It's one, it's one movement that has those two effects, turning from and turning to. That's how you and I are saved. That's how everyone in every time from every people group is saved. That's God's promise yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols. Turn to me in the person of Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the salvation that Jesus purchased on the cross. That's the salvation available to everyone. And that's the condition under which salvation is available to everyone. Repent of your sin, turn to God, and be saved. Or, God's not done yet, or not. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, like he swore before Abraham. There's no greater oath that God can swear than by himself. We read that in Hebrews. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone on in my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and to all... I'm sorry, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That's the choice, eloquently, dramatically presented. Fall on the rock or be crushed beneath the stone. Turn to God in mercy or meet him in judgment. How many hymns have been written from those three verses? One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure is, the, for, is, is still for those who gladly choose you now. God is reminding us physical deliverance is going to come through Cyrus. It's going to happen. And God is confessing that he's puzzled. I don't know why anyone would despise it. It's deliverance. Why do you care how I do it? 
but it's a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance, right? An eternal deliverance. It's going to happen, God says. And some are going to despise that too. The idea that salvation comes through Christ alone. That at the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10, and only at the name of Jesus, every tongue will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will despise that. Some will say, God, I don't know why you did it that way. I don't know why you used that person. And they'll despise that to their, to their peril, to their destruction. But our ministry, yours and mine, is implicit in those verses. Our ministry, we talked about this on Sunday, is to give those knees currently alive a chance to bow today, a chance to bow willingly, a chance to bow joyfully, a chance to bow before God's mercy, before they're forced to bow in judgment. That's why we're here, to point people to that choice, to invite them to make that choice. Midterm elections, almost upon us, and the rhetoric is heating up. I can't believe how many Election deniers are on the ballot, says the liberal. I can't believe how many baby killers are on the ballot, says the conservative. And before you know it, we're going to have 2024 and quite likely a, a Biden-Trump rematch. And make no mistake, huge questions with substantial consequences are, 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 are come before us in both of those elections. But God's reminding us tonight, whatever happens, he does have this. He's got this big issues with huge ramifications. But a bigger, huger God who's able to use Republicans and Democrats, believers and unbelievers, to bring about his plans Plans that we probably comprehend as little as Israel in captivity comprehended the plans that God was speaking to them through Isaiah. Is that a reason not to participate? I've had that conversation two times this week already. I expect to have it more in the next month. Well, if God is sovereign, then why bother to vote? The answer is that in his sovereignty, God has gifted us with responsibility. And we have unique responsibility in this country. We've been given a tremendous stewardship responsibility. The opportunity to participate in our government. That's a gift. That's a treasure. And God will hold us accountable for our stewardship of it. At the same time. At the same time, whatsoever we do, we do as unto the Lord, including vote, including participate in the political process. But at the same time, God reminded us he has a plan that human efforts will not derail. He had in mind a plan before he created the world. He had in mind a plan for creating the world. 
God has a plan for the world. And the plan is redemption. Jesus wasn't an ambulance sent to the site of a wreck. The cross was not God's backup plan. When did God conceive of the cross? Before he laid the foundation of the world. The purpose of this world. At least in so far as we're able to glimpse it. At least in so far as God has revealed it. Is to put God's glory on display. Through the thing that only he can do. Redemption. Salvation. And his plan will not be thwarted. And so our plan, our purpose, needs to be his plan and his purpose. Our priority must be his priority. To say to the world, verse 22, look at him. All you ends of the earth. Jew, Gentile. Look at him, for he's God. And there is no other. No other name given among men by which we must be saved. Look to Jesus. What will you do with him? Lord, we thank you for the reminder, the reinforcement that even in the seeming chaos and confusion of our world, you have purpose and you have plan. And sometimes it's beyond unlikely, sometimes it's bewildering, sometimes it's just flat beyond our comprehension. But you've revealed so much of yourself, enough of yourself, that we know that we can trust you. We know there's no better place to be than in your will, no safer place than in your presence. And Lord, we are burdened tonight for those who are despising the name Jesus as much as some despise the name Cyrus. For those who resent the idea that you would use a carpenter on a cross. Lord, we know people, we all know people who find that idea as repugnant as the idea of you using a, a Persian king. The idea that there's only one way by which we must be saved. Lord, we, we pause now and just bring before you in the privacy of our hearts names, faces, souls, family members, co-workers, neighbors. those we worshiped with for a time or thought we did, those who stood with us in this, in this church, sat with us in these seats, who are now denying you, mocking you. 
Your plan is salvation. Your purpose is redemption. Lord, are there things we can say, actions we can take, and perhaps not for those heavy on our hearts, Lord, perhaps our ministry is to people that we don't know. And others will speak Jesus to the people that we do know so well. Your plan is greater. Your plan is beyond us. Your ways are higher. They're past finding out. Tonight, we choose to trust in them. We choose to trust in you. Our brothers, our friends, our parents, our children. Prodigals, professed atheists, Lord, you love each one more than we do. You remember the names that even now we're forgetting. Lord, would you put verse 22 before them in a way that you know has the best chance of appealing to them? And would you use us to put that question before those that you put in our path? Those divine appointments, those encounters, those Jesus conversations that you sovereignly planned, even as you breathed the universe into existence. You knew them, Lord. Show us that we might know them. You tell us in your word tonight, you didn't create us to hide your will in the clouds. Speak your plans to us, Jesus, that we might walk in them. We ask in your holy name. Amen.